Well, good morning. A little video that we show sometimes before a message is called a sermon bumper. Not sure why it's that name, but that is the name of it, a sermon bumper. And when Chris and I were brainstorming about the, the sermon bumper for this series, we decided to use the theme of an old tent revival. <clears throat> and perhaps we talked about maybe showing someone like Billy Graham uh, preaching. But it sounded really good. It sounded like a good idea. Until last night, I was watching the bumper last night, and I realized that I have to get up and preach after that. I said, how do you follow Billy Graham? In fact, I texted Chris. I said, can we just, he, pre- he presents the gospel. Can we just, you know, maybe show that and give the invitation? It's just, how do you follow Billy Graham? The times we live in are a lot different from the days of the tent revivals, aren't they? Our nation is experiencing days unlike any we've ever seen in our history. The moral slide in our nation has degraded into a revolution that seems almost unstoppable. Things that were once considered sinful are now considered normal. Every day in the newspaper we read about same-sex marriages or transitioning, the new popular code word, transitioning from a man to a woman. Uh, Just some of the examples of the things we see every day uh, in the news. Simultaneously, While we have that decay in the moral fabric of our nation, at the same time, the world is becoming more dangerous by the second. Groups like Boko Haram and ISIS have terrorized communities with their savage, unthinkable brutality. And yet their following continues to increase. Their numbers continue to grow. While all of this is going on, the church in America is sleeping. The church in America is experiencing spiritual lukewarmness that is plaguing the church today. Results of that are so evident. Infrequent church attendance, declining and dying churches, lagging evangelistic efforts, undeniable uh, complacency are in the pews. We're at a desperate time in America. Our nation, our churches, and folks like you and me, desperately need God and need revival. I'm so glad that our uh, Southern Baptist leaders are starting to sense that, and they've asked churches like ours to spend a few weeks focused on the need for revival and spend a few weeks bringing our people back to that, and there's going to be a concentrated prayer effort in that regard because they understand and we understand that we are in a desperate time and in desperate need of revival. But what does that mean? And what would it really look like if we experienced it? That's what this series is going to be about. For the next four Sundays, we are going to focus on pursuing God in a fresh way. Pursuing God with new passion. The need for revival, though, is not something very new. It can can be traced all the way back to the book of the, uh, or to the books of the Old Testament. Psalm 85 is one example. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, as I preach today, I want you to know I'm preaching for a verdict. I am preaching today uh, for life change. And as we get started in Psalm 85, I would like to ask you to practice with me. Here's what I want you to practice. Say this word with me. Amen. Say it again. Amen. Say it like you mean it. Amen. Use that sometime throughout the message, all right? Amen. (laughs) 
The need for revival goes all the way back to the days of the Old Testament, Psalm 85. Every text has a context. Before we read the text, let me give you the context uh, of this material. This psalm was probably written after the Jewish people returned to their homeland following 70 years of captivity in Babylon. So for 70 years, they had been uh, taken away from their country, taken away from their homes, taken away from their land, and experienced God's judgment and God's chastisement for 70 years. Now they've been allowed to go back to their homeland. And though they had returned to their land, not all of them had returned to God. Someone has said a change in geography will never overcome a flaw in character. What that means is simply a change of scenery is not the same as a change of heart. That's why some people say, well, you know, I, maybe I, we just need to go to another church. We're just not getting anything here, and maybe we just need to go to another church. Can I tell you the flaw with that theory? You just go somewhere else. Can I tell you the flaw with that? You're going to take you with you. And when you take you with you, if you haven't changed, then probably you're not going to experience anything differently there either. What we all need, not just you, all of us, what we all need is a fresh encounter with God. Psalm 85 shows us what to do if we're thirsty for a closer relationship with God. I'd like to ask you to stand in honor of God's Word today as we read Psalm 85, verses 1 through 7. You showed favor to your land, O Lord. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all of their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned away from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God, our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Father, I pray that today we would hear from heaven, we would hear your voice above mine, and that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide as we look at this text. Show us, Lord, how we can experience revival. And I ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. As we work our way through this text, I want you to notice in the first three verses, the author is speaking in the past tense. Perhaps he's referring to that restoration of the people of God back to their homeland. But he speaks in the past tense, beginning in verse 1. He says, you showed, past tense, you showed favor to your land, O Lord. One indication that perhaps it indeed is talking about that time when they got to go back to their land. You restored the fortune of Jacob. You forgave, past tense, the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins, past tense. You set aside all your wrath, past tense, and turned away from your fierce anger. But in verse 4 through 7, something changes. We go from past tense to present tense. Because instead of these past tense problems, now there seems to be some present tense troubles. And so he says in in verse 4, restore us. What's that next word, church? Restore us what? Again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again? 
I'd like to ask you to take your pen or pencil today and underline the the three words in verse 6, revive us again. I would like to ask you to mark that because that's not only the title of my message today, it's going to be the theme of the entire series this month, revive us again. In fact, I want to focus on those three words today in my message. We're going to look at each of those three words, revive us again. Let's start with the word revive. What is revival? The the root word revive is made up of two parts. R-E meaning again and V-I-V-E meaning to live. To revive means to live again. It means to be brought back to life. That's what revival is when, when God brings you back to life. Now please note, this is so important, please note that this is the work of God. That this is something only God can do. It's so evident in verse 4 and in verse 6. Restore us again, O God our Savior. Verse 6, will you not, will you, you, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Revival is when God does something for us and in us to bring us back to life in our relationship with Him. Revival is not something you can manufacture. Revival is not something that you can kind of organize. Revival is something that God does for you and in you. Now, please understand how important it is that you acknowledge that revival does not start with you, but revival comes from God. Think about it this way. How many of you question, raise your hand, you don't have have to say anything about it, but just raise your hand. How many of you have ever... <clears throat> excuse me, have ever administered CPR to somebody in a life-threatening situation? Raise your hand and hold it up high. But don't, don't be afraid, don't be ashamed. Wonderful. Many of you have, several of you have. I got a question for you. Those of you who raised your hand. <clears throat> and I'm glad to know we got that many here because I might need it here in a little bit. So I'm feeling more comfortable about the whole situation now. <clears throat> How many of you, when you administered life-saving CPR... Why didn't you just let them revive themselves? Why do you say, well, I'm sure he'll be all right. Come on, come on. You know that would be impossible, right? They need assistance from someone else in order to live again. Revival is not something that you can bring about. Revival is not something you can do for yourself. It is not something that is a result of your own efforts. We need God's help, ladies and gentlemen, in order to live again. But you and I do have a role to play in this. Though it is God's sovereign work, we do have a role to play in this. We do have a role to play in order for revival to come into our lives. And our job, our role is this. It's to repent. That's our role in revival, to repent. The word repent is not found in this psalm, but it is implied in verse 4. Look again at the, the verse, verse 4. Restore us again, O God our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. The word restore there, the Hebrew word is the, is the word shub, S-H-U-B, shub. And it means to turn back or to return. To turn back or to return. All through the Bible, God calls His people to turn back. All through the Bible, God calls His people to return to Him, to repent. Now, why is it that God calls us to turn back? Why is it that God calls us to return? 
It's because of the judgment that's going to come towards us if we don't. Look at verse 4 and 5. Restore us again, O God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? But when we turn back, when we return, when we repent, when we confess our sins before God, watch this, this is so good. When we turn back to God, God turns back to us. That's the amazing thing about our God. When we turn back, God turns back to us and he restores us. Scripturally, it is impossible. You need to understand this. Scripturally, it is impossible for you to have revival without repentance. Unless you turn back, unless you turn towards God, you cannot and will not have revival. It has always been God's requirement for his people. In order to have revival, there must be repentance. When God sees that we're broken over our sin and that we are turning back to him, that's when he gladly turns back to us. Let me tell you what that day is like. Let me describe what that, that experience is like. In fact, I'll let the scripture tell you what that is like. In verse 6, he describes it. He says, will you not revive us again? And notice what he says in the second half of the verse. That your people may rejoice in you. Real revival is when all of a sudden you're rejoicing in God. You are enjoying God. You have a new interest and a new desire that you didn't have before or haven't had for a while. James McDonald said it this way. He said, revival is a renewed interest in God and the things of God after a period of indifference or decline. Revival is when I gladly put God at the center of my life and I enjoy his presence again. That's what revival is. So the first word we're looking at is the word revive. The second word I want to focus on is the word us. He says in that verse, revive us. In fact, six times in verses 4 through 7, you'll see the word us. Look at Psalm 85 again. Restore us again, O God, our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O God, and grant us your salvation. Who is us? Listen to me. It's God's people. God's people. There are times when the people of God need a fresh encounter with God. There are times when the people of God need a fresh encounter with God. They need to be brought back to life spiritually. They need to be restored to a right relationship with Him. Now, I don't know if if your Bible has little notes at the top of the psalm, but can you tell me who wrote Psalm 85? Can anyone tell me who wrote Psalm 85? Usually we think of the Psalms as being written by David, but there were some other authors. Anybody know? Yes. The sons of Korah wrote Psalm 85. It's interesting that the sons of Korah who wrote this Psalm honestly said, we are the ones who need the Lord. We are the ones who need God. We are the ones who need revival. Restore us. And I wonder if we would be that honest. I wonder if we would be that honest to say, yes, we are the ones who need God. We are the ones who need to be restored. Henry Blackaby said, we must understand that a true call for revival is first and foremost a recognition that we've departed from God. 
Revival has always been and remains to this day dealing with the sin of his own people, not the sins of the world. Isn't that what, what it says in Second Chronicles 7? If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and heal their land. Who's the us? Revive us. It's you and me. It's God's people. And I've got to ask you this question. Have you moved so far from God that you have become content in your sin and do not recognize your need for God, your desperate need for God? Revive us. Listen to me. It's hard for us to realize sometimes that we've departed from God. Because we've grown up in church. We're, we're used to church. We know all the church words. We know all the church people. We've got positions in church. We are reluctant to truly repent. We are reluctant to truly sometimes admit that we need to repent. But again, that reluctance is not anything new. God spoke to his people about this problem in another book of the Old Testament called Jeremiah. If you flip over to the right, I want you to go to Jeremiah chapter 8. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 8. Very intriguing scripture. Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 4. God is speaking to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. And he's telling Jeremiah what to say to them. And so we read in verse 4 of Jeremiah chapter 8. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. When men fall down, do they not get up? Isn't that natural for men to, they fall down to get up? When a man turns away, does he not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. No one repents of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people, notice that, but my people, do not know the requirements of the Lord. Did you hear the incredulous tone in that passage of Scripture? It's as if God can't believe what he's seeing. It's as if God cannot understand what he's witnessing. In verse 5 he said, They cling to deceit and they refuse to return. They are clinging, my people. God says, my people are clinging to deceit and they are refusing to return. And instead of asking for forgiveness, they're asking this question. What have I done? What's wrong with my life? I mean, I can see something wrong in your life. I can see something wrong in their life. What have I done? I'm a pretty good guy. What have I done? I'm a pretty good lady. What, what, have, what have I done? <clears throat> in verse 7, God uses a powerful example to show them their need to return. Verse 7, he says, Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. He uses a powerful illustration from nature to say, Hey, the birds of the air know intuitively the season when they are to turn and go back home to migrate. 
The birds of the air know when to turn and when to come back and when to go home. But God says that His people don't know when it's time to repent. I read a story. I found it fascinating. I thought I'd just read it to you because I won't be able to quote it quite right unless I just read it to you. But but illustrating this very passage of Scripture where God says, the birds of the air know when to return. They instinctively know the need and the time to return. Listen to this. All across the Carolina coast, there is a little bird called the red knot, K-N-O-T, the red knot. It is a sandpiper. Every year, that little bird will fly 18,000 miles round trip. Every February. What month is this? February. Every February, they will fly, listen to this, from the coast of Argentina over Brazil and out over the Atlantic. They will fly nonstop for a week. About mid-May, they touch ground along the swampy areas of the Delaware Bay at the exact time horseshoe crabs are laying their eggs. Every little red knot will eat about 135,000 horseshoe crab eggs. I've often wondered, who is the guy that's counting that? Who's it? One, two, three. But, but they say, the studies that they did, that every little red knot will land in the Delaware Bay, in the marshes there, and will eat about 135,000 horseshoe crab eggs. Then they will fly north to Canada, where every female red knot will lay four speckled eggs. Those little eggs hatch. By mid-July, the females will leave the males and the baby birds and start flying south. Mama says, see ya. Did my job. A week later, the males will leave the babies and fly south. By mid-August, those little birds, without any parental direction, fly 9,000 miles south, out over the Atlantic, all the way to Tierra del Fuego at the southern tip of Argentina. Is that not amazing? God says, look at the birds of the air. They know where to return and when to return. But my people don't know when it's time to come back to me. Revive us. Because God, we need it. It's time. It's time. Then there's a third word I want you to notice in that phrase back in Psalm 85. Verse 6. Revive us again. When I've studied that this week, that word again, really began to sink into my heart. You know what the word again is indicating? That none of us stay in a love relationship with God completely and continually. None of us do. We can lose our desire for godliness. We can lose our our desire for the things of God. Now, we cannot lose our salvation, but we can lose the joy of our salvation. David, in fact, said that in Psalm 51, after a time of sin with Bathsheba, David later in repentance prayed to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He had not lost his salvation, but he said, I sure have lost the joy of it. So restore to me, God, because I can't do it on my own. I can't do it for myself. I need you to revive me again. Bring me back to life again, O oh God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So I've got to ask you a question. And only you can answer it. Have you lost the joy of your salvation? 
Have you lost the joy of knowing God? The word again implies that what God did for us in the past, we sometimes need God to do for us in the present. What God did for us in the past, we sometimes need God to do again. This past week I was in, on Friday I believe it was, I was in Tennessee. And uh, we drove by a mountain there on the edges of Johnson City. It's it's a wonderful mountain, I don't remember the name of it, but it overlooks Johnson City. And I mentioned to my wife, I said, Larry used to climb to the top of that mountain. They had this prayer emphasis, that was Prayer Mountain. I didn't remember a whole lot about it, but when we finally got to see Larry later on Friday, I asked him about it. I said, tell me about this Prayer Mountain. And the story of Prayer Mountain is something like this. Uh, His church, uh, around 1999, his church decided to go up on this mountain and pray for their lives, pray for their families, pray for the church, and pray over the city of Johnson City. On the top of the mountain, you could see lots of the city. And so go up there and just kind of pray over the city of Johnson City. And their church did that for 40 days. Every day going to Prayer Mountain. Every day going to the top of the mountain to pray for their lives, for their family, for the church and to pray over the city. Every day, their church did that for 40 days. He said at the end of the 40 days, as they got near the end of the 40 days, they decided to invite other churches to come join them on Prayer Mountain. Churches from all over East Tennessee began to show up. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people began to come to Prayer Mountain and to climb that mountain. And every day, they would be on top of the mountain praying for their lives, for their families, for the churches, and praying over Johnson City. Larry said at the end of that 80 days, he felt God asking him to go another 40 days. So Larry prayed 120 days on prayer mountain. Without exception, without missing a day, Larry went to the top of that mountain every day for 120 days. And he prayed to God. He said some amazing things happened during that time. It was, it was on prayer mountain where God really called him to preach. He said, or at least that's where I surrendered to preach. It was on prayer mountain. During that 120-day time is when he finally said yes to God about the call to preach. He said also during that 120-day time when he was on that mountain, his daughter was diagnosed, sometime during that time, was diagnosed with cancer. And he went to the top of that mountain and he prayed and he prayed and prayed for his daughter's summer. And she went back to the doctor and the doctor said, I don't know what's happened, but there's no trace of cancer in your body. And to this day, to this day, So far as we know, she is cancer-free. Just had her third baby recently. Larry talked about, he said it was just an amazing time. It was 120 days on that prayer mountain. Now listen to me. But eventually, even though you've been there 120 days, eventually, you have to come down the mountain, don't you? Eventually, the experience becomes a memory. Eventually, the things of God begin to take second place to other things. Eventually, other things become more important. And eventually, we have to say, revive us again. I was on the mountain. And I was there for 120 days. And I saw you do amazing things. But now... Now I need you to revive us again. My guess is, many of you know exactly what that feels like. 
Many of you know exactly what it's like to look back on your relationship with God and realize that those close times, those intimate times with God are a memory, not an experience. They're a memory. You're not where you used to be with God. You're not walking with Him like you once did. You don't have the joy that you used to have. And now you're going through the motions. And now you're coming on Sunday because you're supposed to come here on Sunday. But you're thinking about checking out. You're thinking about doing something else. You're thinking about going somewhere else. Because it's just not what it used to be. You don't need anybody else. You need God again. Revive us again. How do you truly repent and ask God to revive you again? We'll give you four things real quickly. Four things. Here's how you do it. Number one, change your mind. You agree with God that what you've done is wrong. Agree with God that what you've done is wrong. Change your mind. If you have a tendency to argue with God about whether what you've done is wrong, if you have a tendency to try to excuse your sinful ways, then you have not repented. Repentance begins when you say, God, this is wrong, this is sin. You change your mind. Number two, you change your heart. You begin to grieve over your sin instead of holding on to it. You grieve over your sin instead of nursing that grudge. Grieve over your sin instead of holding on to that lust. You grieve over that which you used to treasure. You grieve over that which you used to cling to. Because you return to your first love, you begin to grieve over the sin in your life. Number three, not only do you change your mind and change your heart, number three, you change your will. Turning away from sin You radically put sin away from you. You begin to identify those things that do not honor God. You begin to identify those things that are wrong before God. And you radically remove those things from your life. You remove the temptations. You remove the opportunities. You remove the idols of your heart. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your will. Number four, you change your actions. You return to God's way of living. Change your actions. You return back to the way that God wants you to live. Repentance is complete when there are signs or evidence that you have repented. When, when, listen, listen. Here's how you know if you've repented. If you're living differently. A week from now, a month from now, you're living differently. Repentance is not remorse. Repentance is not regret. Repentance is, is not just this feeling of, boy, I feel really bad that I did that. Repentance is not when you say, God, I, I, I want to do better. Repentance is when you change your mind, you change your heart, you change your will. And a week from now or a month from now, you're living differently. Because you turned back. You turned around. You went back to God. And this is my prayer. That you would join me here at this altar during this invitation, and you'd pray a simple prayer. Revive us again. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Dear God, I pray, Lord, that you would revive us again. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Help us, God, to be honest and open with you so that you can deal with the sin in our life. And I pray that as we turn back to you, you turn back to us. Help us to lay aside our pride, our ego. I desire to look better in front of people. And may we experience your your pleasure and your presence and your power 
Revive us again, O oh God. I pray that in Jesus' name.